Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. New plans to redevelop London's once iconic Euston Station revealed. A bid to create a refugee centre inside an oligarch mansion is broken up by the police. From Chiswick to Cockfosters, two London development sagas hampered by cars. And Iconicon, a new book celebrating Britain's contemporary buildings. My name is Rachel Coppell, and I work at Open City, and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. My guest this week is John Grinrod. John is an architectural writer and author of Iconicon, a journey around the landmark buildings of contemporary Britain. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Four protesters have been arrested after a mansion suspected to have links to a Russian oligarch was occupied by squatters over the weekend. This story was reported in the Evening Standard, The Guardian, and Sky News. Activists broke into five Belgrave Square late Sunday night and hung the Ukrainian flag from the balcony along with a banner reading, quote, the property has been liberated. Police officers in riot gear were seen removing the squatters from the building and remanding four protesters in custody on Monday. The group of self-proclaimed anarchists released a statement saying they were occupying the building in solidarity with the people of Ukraine and of Russia. They went on to say that, quote, the invasion of Ukraine is only the last episode in a long series from the support of Assad in Syria to concentration camps for LGBT plus people, ecocides, massive wealth inequality, and brutal repression of political opponents. According to their statement, the group's intention was to turn the mansion into a refugee center. The building is said to belong to the Russian oligarch industrialist Oleg Deripaska, who is currently being targeted by UK economic sanctions. Deripaska has denied owning the property. However, a spokesperson for the billionaire said that the mansion was owned by members of his family. Last week, as we reported on Lundown, Sadiq Khan called for greater transparency around tax and overseas homeowners in the capital, citing the 100 London properties cumulatively worth £1.1 billion owned by Russians accused of corruption or links to the Kremlin. The mayor said government ministers have, quote, turned a blind eye to the use of our capital's homes as a safe harbor for oligarchs to park their cash and claimed this is having a negative impact on both our international reputation and our local housing market. Protesters who had occupied the balcony at the front of the building repeatedly refused police attempts to pick them up using a crane. 
Referencing the Partygate inquiry, members of the group said they wanted to be treated the same way as the prime minister and wished to be sent a questionnaire to ascertain whether they had done anything wrong rather than be arrested. In a message to Russian oligarchs, the squatters said, quote, you occupy Ukraine, we occupy you. So, John, last week we reported that the London mayor's criticism of the lack of checks and controls over Kremlin-linked money and property in the capital. Housing Secretary Michael Gove has also weighed in on the issue, telling the BBC, quote, I want to explore an option which would allow us to use the homes and properties of sanctioned individuals for humanitarian and other purposes. With this in mind, is it ironic that the police have been so quick to arrest individuals who appear to be doing exactly what the incumbent housing secretary is suggesting, albeit taking the law into their own hands? Well, this seems to be a, a sort of story in a series of announcements all about all about contradictions. That, um, and I wonder how sincere that Michael Gove comment was, really. It sort of feels so against the grain of the government and the era that that would happen, that we would reclaim these mansions. You know, it, does, it doesn't really feel to me like that is a, a sincere thing. And we, we, you know, we have got a government of kind of announcements rather than action, I feel, you know. So in the government, we've seen, we've seen a real sort of bit of combat between Priti Patel's position and Michael Gove's position. And there is this kind of philosophical divide and you can see how the police, you know, it makes it very, very difficult to kind of work out exactly what we should be doing, you know, and what the police should be doing if, you know, they're actually, they can't even decide between them, you know, if, if the you know, a small group of people like the cabinet can't decide between them what we should be doing. Then how on earth are the rest of us are supposed to know what the rules are or, you know, what, what actually is supposed to be happening? Building on that point and with images of Moscow and St. Petersburg anti-war protesters being bundled into prison vans by Russian police, shocking viewers around the world, surely arresting these squatters doesn't look good for the Metropolitan Police right now. While squatting residential buildings was made illegal back in 2012, have the police misread the room here? And do you think it adds fuel to fears the Met seemingly does more to protect property than people in London? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a there's a lot of truth in that. And I think also there is a feeling, I think, that the Met is a very inward-looking rather than outward-looking organisation, that it doesn't really respond to society or the way that we, you know, things change or the way that we live now, that it is much more interested in kind of internal processes and being not even internally consistent, but just kind of feeling like it is a unified thing, even if it's not actually maybe acting in a unified way. So I feel like that has that is that is an issue with the way that it has behaved. Um, and, you know, there there is an issue around, you know, not engaging with a changing world here as well. That 2012 change about squatting, I mean, that should never have happened in the first place. And that is a big issue sort of further back up the chain in terms of legislation. You know, that legislation shouldn't shouldn't have happened and the consequences of passing this kind of like half-baked very sort of strict laws in an attempt to look tough and clamp down on stuff is that further down the line you see all the consequences of that which are undesirable and they are not the things that they wanted to clamp down on at the time you know and so this is a classic example so you end up with really really heavy-handed policing going on because they're following some you know legislation that was passed in 2012 um, which now looks like it's totally inappropriate so that that is an issue I think that is much you know goes much higher than the Metropolitan Police that is due to a sort of a poor piece of legislation. 
So the war in Ukraine has really brought this issue to the forefront, but the argument to open up unoccupied homes across the capital is not new. Data compiled by the insurer Admiral last year found that nearly 30,000 homes in London were unoccupied, not including non-residential properties. Meanwhile, we're in the middle of a housing crisis, not to mention the thousands of refugees who are trying to seek asylum in the UK. Should we be looking at opening up more of these buildings and not just the oligarch mansions? Absolutely. This is not just a sort of issue around oligarchitecture. This is an issue, you know, that affects loads of us in streets all over London, you know, where, you know, either they're in buy to leave or in a lot of places, Airbnbs, you know, and it kind of, you end up with a a local area that is sort of being hollowed out because you've got fewer kids going to school. You've got, you know, fewer of all of that kind of like local spending going on and people invested in the local community. And that sort of thing has a really detrimental effect to everybody because, suddenly you know the air goes out of your local area because you know you lose the kind of critical mass that creates a community uh, in your place I think you know there's a brilliant organization called Action on Empty Homes whose whole remit is around trying to encourage people to sort of take back these these empty homes if they see them empty and you know literally nobody is going out at all what can be done and they've produced a really really good kind of toolkit that can help communities and the local authority uh, take back these homes and it sort of tells you how to kind of trace the owners how to how to then what to do next you know what all the steps are in that sort of stuff so I think if you know if you are actually wanting to do something you know proactive that's a really good place to start actually looking action on empty homes thank you for supporting the lundown by listening subscribing and sharing the show the lundown is produced by open city and the london society open city is a charity best known for the open house festival but also for our tours educational programs and events the show along with the festival and schools programs are free because we believe everyone should have access to the tools and resources to learn about and experience our built environment To keep this show free for everyone, we rely on those of you who can afford it to donate the equivalent of one coffee per month. If this is you, please go to open-city.org.uk forward slash flat white to donate and help keep these conversations accessible, inclusive, and honest. Transport Secretary Grant Shapps has blocked a Transport for London-backed housing scheme at Cockfoster Station, claiming the project designed by Hawkins, Brown, and May would build over much-needed car parking spaces. This was reported in the AHA this week. Shapps said he was worried that parking provision at the North London Tube Station would become inadequate once the contentious 351-home scheme was built partly on 407 existing car parking spaces. Despite local complaints, including nearly 3,000 written objections during early consultations, Enfield Council's planning committee narrowly approved the proposals last month. However, Shaps later blocked the scheme using a rare government-level veto power. The car park debacle is part of a broader ongoing political tussle between London Mayor Sadiq Khan's administration and Tory rivals on the London Assembly who have accused Khan of waging a, quote, war on the suburbs by building towers in outer London. Meanwhile, in West London, cars are once again finding themselves part of a development obstacle. This time, it's all to do with the Chiswick Roundabout, which has chalked up more than two decades of planning failures, as reported by Richard Waite in the AJ. The site, 
which is hemmed in by motorways, is home to one of the lengthiest planning sagas in living memory, and at its heart is the developer Kim Gottlieb, who has a dream to build something, anything, on the roundabout. His latest effort is a 23-story residential scheme designed by Simpson Ha named Holly House, which follows attempts by at least four other architects since 1998. Previous proposals included a 26-story office tower by LOM Architecture, a 13-story commercial building by Gottlieb's own company, London and Bath, a 50-meter-tall sculpture-like building coined the Chiswick Octopus by Make Architects, and most recently, Studio Egret West's 327-home scheme dubbed the Chiswick Curve. Gottlieb hopes that his latest plans for the troublesome roundabout will finally be met with approval. So, John, what is this all about? Why are we perpetually in this situation where we desperately need housing in London, yet plans to develop brownfield sites such as a car park in Cockfosters into more homes are being turned down? Why are these developments so controversial, particularly in outer London areas, including the Greenbelt, where transport by four wheels is such a big part of everyday life? I mean, there are loads of reasons why, but I sort of do feel that a lot of it is down to political cowardice. And it is, when I was writing about the Greenbelt and researching it, when I, I wrote a book about it called Outskirts years ago, and, you know, the thing that really, really struck me was that over and again, people would avoid making a big political decision about these kind of things because it would end your career. And so politicians just became terrified of making a decision about this stuff. So what they do is they kind of they shunt it off so that it all comes down to protesters versus the developer or it becomes about the architects versus a heritage organisation, that kind of thing. And it stops being about the politician making an active decision about what should happen. And now we see, you know, we see the London mayor sort of wanting something, but then the national gov government kind of, you know, stepping in and saying no. So, you know, even even there, we're seeing like different layers of of you know, politicians kind of cancelling each other out. So there is this kind of, there, there is this constant abdication of responsibility for a really, really important bit of our, um, of our built environment or unbuilt environment. And, um, and I think that that's a massive problem because, you know, no, nobody is willing to kind of put their, their career on the line and make any of these very difficult decisions that, that should be made. So why do cars still have so much power in the city? The mayor, climate scientists, and even healthcare professionals are all urging people to take up active travel, such as walking, cycling, and public transport wherever possible. Yet, the inconvenience of finding a parking space is putting the brakes on a development that could provide 351 homes. Why are we in this situation? We we need more people who are sort of willing to sort of break the rules, really. When you look at, say, for example, Peter Barber, or you look at um, Goldsmith Street in Norwich, the Mikhail Riches uh, scheme there, they all break the rules in terms of what you're allowed to do in terms of car parking spaces and the amount of sp space that you would have, you know, how wide the street is and all that sort of stuff. They sort of condensed all of that stuff, produced a lot less car parking spaces, produced more housing and, um, and sort of greater footprint of the housing. And that, 
you know, in all of those cases, they broke all those rules of local planning authorities, you know, they were very difficult to get through, but they've managed somehow to do it. You know, it, it's not easy to do that kind of thing. But you you see that it is possible. And actually, when that, those things do happen, you end up with something much better than if you do follow the rules and you end up with these great kind of sprawly things with a load of surface car parking. But, you know, the only way that we're going to sort of decrease the amount of car ownership and, you know, and encourage people to sort of you know, get around more with public transport and stuff, is if, you know, you just make it a bit harder to actually, you know, have four cars out of your, outside your house. It seems no one can agree with what to do with housing in London's outer boroughs. So something like the Green Belt, rather than being something that's fully reconciled within society, something everybody loves and knows and celebrates, ends up being the focus of endless debates about its future. If it were up to you, what would the Green Belt and outer London look like? It's really, really interesting because I think one of the things about the Green Belt is, is that because it's this great big sort of space on a map that you can map and you can kind of show it as green, um, it looks, A, it looks like it's some, some kind of a beautiful kind of environmental zone, which it isn't because a lot of that land has been degraded by the people who own it. Um, you know, degraded in different ways, either from neglect or because they've turned it into golf courses and therefore created a kind of sort of dead, sterile environment. Um, I love it. I mean, I mentioned Peter Barber earlier. I loved his his idea of the edge city around London where, you know, you would kind of wall it off with a kind of, with a sort of four-storey building containing kind of apartments and then gradually you would densify back inwards. So his sort of thing was, you know, we should protect the green belt and the green belt is a really good thing because once we build on it we built on it and that's that we never get it back you know my, my my feeling about the green belt is we need a really draconian law like that because we can't be trusted you know if we're given if we're given a kind of you know a bit of leeway with something like that it just ends up being built all over you just see it happening you know and even even in the green belt where you know there are very very strict rules you still get people building stuff that shouldn't really be there. So I thought that was very interesting. I love Russell Curtis, the architect Russell Curtis, is a very provocative thing he wrote recently about golf courses and about uh, building on golf courses and that, you know, if we we could easily solve um, London's housing crisis by building on some of the some of the golf courses around London because those, you know, those areas, you know, they might be green, but they've got absolutely no environmental value whatsoever and much less so than probably people having gardens, you know. So moving on to the Chiswick Roundabout, why has the Chiswick Roundabout taken so long to get to this stage? Perhaps you could break it down for our listeners. What is going on here and why have none of these proposals gone through? Is a roundabout simply the wrong spot for any kind of housing or offices, or has it worked well in some other places? I mean, breakdown is the operative word here, isn't it? I mean, it's been an absolute breakdown of everything over over. So I used to work really near this round, this Chiswick roundabout, uh, sort of near Gunnersbury Station, and back in the late 90s, which is when the very first one of these proposals came up, and it, there was going to be the Pinnacle, which was going to be a 26-storey tower. Planning consent was withdrawn by John Prescott in 2000. Then in 2002, there was going to be the Citadel that was going to be 13 storeys, but then the recession kind of killed that. 2011, Make had designed the Octopus, which is a classic sort of make outrage um 50 meters tall clad in leds um like really really like super flashy sort of crazy crazy thing uh 2017 studio egret west um 
came up with a 32-storey um, Chiswick curve, which was going to be 327 flats. And Historic England said it would spoil the views from Kew and to Kew, which is a big historic kind of, you know, site nearby. So that kind of killed that. So now, so now there's this new one, Holly House, which is going to be r- residential, 23 storeys. Um, we don't really know. <laughs> we don't really know where this is going to happen. I mean, it's got like a huge list of objectors against it. You know, there's sort of lots of heritage people, lots of kind of local organisations. Um, I think it's a really good idea, partly because of air quality is such a such a massive issue here. And it's interesting that that has never been one of the reasons that these things have been turned down. The idea of air quality and that it's on a roundabout, and that is a really, really choked up, congested quite an unpleasant environment to walk around having walked through it a lot of times it's really not very you know and I wouldn't you know you wouldn't like to live there with that air quality so doing something about that air quality there has got to be a fundamental thing but it's interesting that that's never been one of the reasons that these things have been turned down. The latest in a long series of concept designs for the transformation of Euston Station have been revealed by the project's architects Grimshaw, the same firm who transformed London Bridge and built the old Eurostar terminus at Waterloo. Once rebuilt, Euston will be the London terminus for the new high-speed rail line to Birmingham and eventually Manchester. The new concept images were reported in the AJ. The latest design comes seven years after initial visuals were first unveiled for the replacement of the 1960 station complex, which itself controversially replaced an earlier neoclassical station in the central London site. After the original redevelopment plans were slated by the independent Ochre V Review, the Department for Transport ordered a comprehensive redesign. The resulting redesign will deliver a station with a 300-meter-long concourse, twice the length of St. Paul's and significantly larger than Trafalgar Square. The revised proposal also features 10 platforms, as opposed to the original design's 11, as well as a triple-height central hall, perched beneath a vaulted geometric roof structure featuring a dazzling gold finish. While these latest designs include a first floor featuring restaurants and cafes either side of the central, the translucent outline of skyscrapers in the visuals also indicate the future development above the station, which will be delivered by Lendlease and architects Asif Khan, Bajrak Ingalls Group, Grimshaw, Alford Hall, Monaghan Morris, and Hayworth Tompkins. No decision has yet been made about the scale of overdevelopment on the station, and although HS2 bosses are keen to maximize the space to create new homes, the site is crisscrossed by six views protected by London View Management Framework, which limits where tall buildings can be sited. Grimshaw is lead architect on the scheme, working with engineers Arup and WSP, as well as the contractors Mace and Dragados joint venture, which will build the station. In 2020, it was revealed that more than £100 million had already been spent on the multiple designs of the HS2 station. The station, which is only due to be completed between 2030 and 2036, is one of four stations to be developed as part of HS2 Phase 1. Old Oak Common, Birmingham, Curzon Street, and Interchange Station in Solihull, designed by Wilkins and Iyer, Grimshaw and Arup, respectively, will also be redesigned. So, John... These are the latest proposals for Euston. What do you think of them? Do they speak to a new era of London and national rail infrastructure, or do you struggle to think where the 100 million worth of design and engineering has been spent getting the concept this far? Well, I mean, it's a bit of both, isn't it, really? I think in terms of, you know, being a, 
a sort of fantastic kind of high-tech optimistic vision of a new transport bit of transport infrastructure for Britain it's um it's a very impressive structure it has a lot of sort of similarities to the new London Bridge station in that it's a sort of sort of large kind of mega structure really um and especially with the as yet kind of oddly ghostly and unrealised towers that that are sort of vaguely there in the renders. The cost, though, is extraordinary for something that they, you know, is still like 20 years away and they haven't done anything to actually physically create any of this yet. I, I struggle to understand. Well, I struggle to understand that number anyway. That's an impossible to imagine immense number but to then imagine that that number has been spent on something that doesn't even exist yet is impossible really so your book is all about the contemporary icons of britain and some of the places you focus on are a lot more unexpected than one might think can you tell our listeners a bit about euston station and the position it holds as a slightly marmite national landmark is it actually quite a unique building in that it's also replaced a long last icon in the 19th century Euston Arch and the surrounding station? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's got an extraordinary history, that site. You know, it was the first intercity station in the UK. It was designed by Philip Hardwick initially and opened in 1837, but it was very small at that point. And then they kept kind of adding to it to the point where it that initial structure you know the the arch and everything and all of those initial buildings were joined by so many more sort of agglomerations on that site that it ends up becoming this very very complicated and difficult to use space and it gets to the point where when they're going to electrify the the rail line in the 50s and 60s um they actually just can't, it's impractical and impossible to use that. So it's a kind of functional, purely for kind of functional reasons, really. They they decided they're going to have to demolish it and replace it with the use and station we have now. There's never not work going on there, long before HS2. It was constantly, constantly work all the time. And it's hard now for us to kind of see those original sort of very clean lines, the teak banister rails, the lovely, you know, sort of... Uh, you know, marble floor and all of that, you know, it's hard to kind of appreciate that because it's been messed around so much. And so it's sort of also hard to imagine that, you know, as a sort of long lasting icon of London, it's not really going to, you know, it's it's never going to have that kind of place in people's heart because it was never left of, left alone long enough to sort of be a sort of respected building in its own right. It was just a very functional space that people just felt they could do anything to all the time, and they did. Iconicon, A Journey Around the Landmark Buildings of Contemporary Britain, is the latest book by our guest. Iconicon is an enthralling journey around the Britain we've created since 1980. The horrors and lights, the triumphs and failures from space-age tower blocks to suburban business parks, and from postmodernist exuberance to passive house eco-efficiency, this is at once a revelatory architectural grand tour and an endlessly witty and engaging piece of social history. This captivating book explores the buildings designed in our lifetimes that encapsulate the dreams and aspirations of our culture while also revealing our sobering realities. Author Nina Stibb, described the book as, quote, a love letter to contemporary buildings and a fantastic account of recent British history, rich in humor. And previous London guest Owen Hatherley said, quote, 
Bernard has spoken to everyone and his observations are humane and acute. So, John, perhaps you could tell our listeners about the inspiration behind this book and the journey behind its creation. Well, so this book covers sort of the last 40 years uh, and the stuff that's been built in Britain in the last 40 years, which is during my lifetime. And so I was sort of interested in basically pursuing this story to try and find out why the things that have been built in the last 40 years got built. You know, what the impulse was to build Docklands, what the impulse was to have all those millennium monuments that happened, you know, and you know, looking at the Olympics and all the kind of, you know, contemporary kind of social housing revolution that's going on at the moment, you know, where all that's come from. And so to do that, it involved travelling around the country, interviewing a lot of people who were there at the time when these things sort of first happened to try and get an idea of what it was like then, because it's all very easy kind of looking back now and sort of projecting on it. But I sort of wanted to know, I wanted to know what it was like at the time, you know, how exciting it was or unexciting, depending. You you can never, you know, one of the lovely things, you never really know what people are going to say. And, you you know, you sort of assume the story is going to be X and you get there and you find out the story is why you know it's totally the opposite to what you thought so on that topic were there any standout moments you had while researching the book were there any places you visited in person or was a lot of the process focused on the archives well I mean there was a lot of archive work but a lot of it was traveling around and walking around places and talking to people you know and talking to architects or planners or politicians and residents and that kind of thing um one of the most fun bits I had was interviewing Terry Farrell who designed the MI6 building and the building above Charing Cross Station and among various others in London and talking about um, he designed a TV studio for TVAM which was a breakfast television company in the early 80s um, and he talked about that you know designing these egg cups that went on the roof and he had one of the giant fiberglass egg cups in his front room and it was incredibly eccentric and fun and you know and he just talked about his obsession with everyday taste and you know coming from a working class background and that you know he he was uh, he wanted to kind of you know bring out everyday taste in his architecture rather than harking back to kind of the big kind of modernist kind of icons like cruise ships and that kind of stuff and I thought you know I found him really really fascinating and engaging to talk to and there was a real kind of human side to that architecture that I really enjoyed and also just chatting to Mike Davis who designed the Millennium Dome which was just an incredible thing to have done you know and talking about the you know how that came about and uh and, you know, how quickly they had to design it and what an awful site it was because it was really poisoned gas works and it was, you know, they, they had to remove all this soil and it was incredibly cold because it was very low and, it, you know, all these things that, that you sort of don't really realise, you know, that go on behind the scenes in, in, you know, in the story of the dome. So speaking of the dome, we're obsessed here at Open City, but our offices are at Bureau, which is within the design district right next to Millennium Dome. And it's really great to see a big chunk of the book covering Docklands, which is an area that we have all really come to love. If you had to draw people's attention to one building in the book, what would it be and why? I I sort of did get quite obsessed by that kind of period around the millennium where um, people were building very kind of optimistic sort of 
exciting structures and there was a feeling of positivity and a feeling that you know we could change the world and that these buildings would kind of help either with kind of you know education for everyone or kind of you know sort of encouraging us to kind of try new things or just be kind of more open and and forward-looking as a nation and all that stuff you know it feels very kind of you know, with the passing of time, that feels like quite a sort of humbling and wonderful kind of dream to have had that we seem to have kind of let go. And around that time, there's an estate that was built um, in South London called Bedzed, which is the Beddington Zero Energy Development, which a lot of architects know and a lot of kind of anyone who's interested in green architecture knows because it's sort of legendary building or legendary sort of set of buildings. But I think probably anyone else never heard of it. It's turned, it's one of those kind of really interesting sort of lost stories of an amazing early eco-development in around the millennium uh, built on an, an old sewage works uh, with all this kind of reclaimed materials all within like 35 miles of of the site and it's just it's just kind of an amazing story and the people that people that commissioned it this little company they had no idea what they were doing they literally had no idea and it was just an incredible thing that it ever got built and it ever and it ever happened and I found that a really inspiring sort of lovely story it was quite, quite emblematic of that whole era I think and you know and also just a real hidden gem. So John many thanks for featuring on the show where can our listeners keep up to speed with your projects and writing? Uh, well, I'm usually all over Twitter um, on at Grindrod um, and I've got a website, johngrindrod.co.uk, where I've got lists of the events that I'm doing and loads of links to writing and that sort of stuff that I've done. So I've got a question for you, Rachel. Is there anything at Open City coming up that you would like to share? Go on, tell us. A lot of things coming in hot this week. The big news is that we're hosting a special Rundown Live at Kingston University on Wednesday, April 6th. It's starting at 6 p.m. It's going to be inside the university's Sterling Prize winning townhouse, and it will include architectural historian Tom Wilkinson and the architect Laura Evans as guest pundits. Also, Program for Open House London is now open for proposals. So if you have a building, housing estate, garden, event, or flat that you'd like to include in the festival, application details are all available on our website. We are also still taking bookings for the first Baylight Fellowship Residential Masterclass, visiting world-class housing, including Accordia, Marmalade Lane, Span Estates in Cambridge, and the Ride in Hatfield. Catering and overnight accommodation at 6A's Cohen Court in Cambridge is included in the price. And finally, tickets are selling like hotcakes to Open City's 2022 keynote lecture that will be given by the acclaimed Scottish architect Kate McIntosh. Edinburgh-born McIntosh is best known for her 1960s social housing projects and her tireless work as a housing campaigner. And tickets can be found Evolutionary Arts in Hackney's website. And John, thank you so much again for coming on the show. This is really fun. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely. You've been listening to The Lundown a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N, 
Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.